Having Sage approved audio for our car rides is a literal lifesaver for my nervous system. And I love making lists of podcasts to share with him when he's ready. I was so excited to hear about a new show called Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, math, geared toward the six plus crowd. Every episode follows two best friends, Max and Molly, who work together to solve riddles and math equations during their time traveling adventures. Recently, we had some family visiting, and on our way to dinner, we popped on an episode of Mysteries About True Histories, math, with my niece and nephew in the car. In this episode, Max and Molly travel back in time to solve a mystery from the order of the problem solvers, along with lots of kid humor mixed in. It was a fun way to enjoy our car ride together and opened the door for some interesting conversation about history and understanding some of the mysteries of the past. Episodes drop every Thursday and are about 15 minutes long, the perfect length for car rides and meal times, and stacked with so much laughter that your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. You're listening to Voices of Your Village. This is episode 137. Today I'm hanging out with Jennifer Anderson. You may know her as the mama behind Kids Eat in Color. Her Instagram is one of my favorite follows. She gives amazing support to families on how to navigate picky eating and supporting kiddos with a healthy relationship with food. She talks about boundaries and creating a schedule and a routine, as well as why we're not using things like food as a reward and why it's really damaging to comment on a child's weight. I love getting to learn from Jennifer, and I'm so jazzed to share this episode with y'all today. All right, folks, let's dive in. Welcome to Voices of Your Village, a place where parents, caregivers, teachers, and experts come to support one another on this wild ride of raising tiny humans. We combine decades of experience with the latest research to create the modern parenting village. Let's dive into honest conversation about real parenting challenges so it doesn't have to be this hard. I'm your host, sleep consultant, child development specialist, and passionate feminist, Alyssa Blass Campbell. Hey, Village, welcome back. Today, I get to hang out with Jennifer Anderson, which also I always want to say Jennifer Aniston. Well, thank you so much for having me. Totally. I feel like that probably you get a number of times. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Google even agrees with you. (laughs) I'm sure. It's a a hot name, popular one. Uh, So can you share a little bit of, of your background and kind of what brings you here today? Sure. So I'm a registered dietitian. I have a master's of science in public health. I also am a mom of two, and that's kind of how I got started with Kids Eating Color. My son wasn't eating very well, and I started posting pictures of his cute little lunches, thinking to myself, you know, I can't be the only mom who's having trouble feeding my child. And it turns out I was right. I'm not. Totally. Yeah, that makes so so much sense. And I'm for us in navigating these conversations within the village, what comes up so often is the fear, like fear from potentially our own experiences, our childhood, our relationship to food or our bodies. And there's just a wealth of information out there and Google can bring you so much. And so I'm glad we get to dive into this today and kind of how how to move forward in a way that you know, my goal within the village is really to find the like middle ground that so much of what we see is the pendulum swing of like, here's how I was raised and I'm going to swing to this other side. And we're always looking for like, and what does that middle ground look like? Right. Uh, and so I want to dive into like, what does that look like? What does research really show? Because like they said, you can hit up Google and be like, I need to do all these things and then yeah. find the exact opposite <laughs> as yes. well. Yes. So can you share a little bit about, just to kickstart, like 
even like the uh, one of the things that really draws me to you is that it, within our village, we're talking a lot about boundaries and structure for kids and finding a balance between like the intuitive eating component and structure and essentially like grazing versus a schedule. Can you speak a little bit more to that? Sure, sure. So I think a lot of this conversation is really influenced by diet culture because there's been a lot of diet culture then, you know, in intuitive eating has kind of come on the scene as an antidote for people who want out of diet culture and, and they want to get in touch with their bodies again. But we have to remember intuitive eating was a method that was created to help people who wanted to get out of diet culture. It wasn't created as, as anything beyond that. Like that was what it was for. And that's what it is. It's a method of therapy for, um, for people who want to enjoy life beyond being on a diet and, and who also care about their health and care about um, taking care of themselves and care about listening to their own body. What I notice a lot is parents assuming that they need to now apply that therapy that was created for adults to children. And that's actually not, that's not what it was for. And it doesn't mean it can't help us understand our own relationship with food, but it's not something that was ever intended to be used for children. So if you like really get into it, there's like a whole method and like all these things that you should do. And then it's not all appropriate for children. With children, we want to help them eat intuitively, which basically means I'm using the same words as intuitive eating, but there's actually a big difference because we want them to maintain their ability to listen to when they're hungry and full. And they're actually the experts on knowing whether they're hungry or full, especially at those really young ages. And we wanna learn how to support them in that. And oddly, what helps them learn when they're hungry and full and how to really understand hunger and fullness is having them eat on a routine or eat on a schedule. We don't have to run our lives entirely by a clock, but we can still have an eating routine where kids aren't just eating whenever they want. Yeah, I feel like we do that a lot as adults too, where it's like we're mm -hmm. at breakfast, lunch, and dinner at kind of specific times and, and then snacks in between. It's also something, so my work and research has been in childcare uh, settings. And so we'd often find is like, how do you get them to eat this at school? And we're like, we're just on a schedule and it's the only yeah. thing provided. And right. so there was no trickery. It was just, this is what's for lunch um, with no fridge to pull something else from. Yeah. And I think for sure, like I have noticed as well in my experience that like the schedule is such a game changer and also then helped us figure out like what else might be going on if we're seeing certain behaviors, et cetera, that we could know, like we know they aren't hungry right now because we just had snack or you know what, we're 15 minutes away from lunch. Like maybe they're a little dysregulated. Uh, so even just having that schedule for figuring out like how to respond to emotions and behaviors, I found remarkably helpful. Right. Uh, but I've heard you also speak to like that grazing. Uh, there's research that shows that it in the long term is not beneficial for us. Why? Yeah, I don't think our bodies were ever meant to be eating all the time. That's like a that's like a really new phenomenon in human history. I mean, food we need to be doing other things. Like um, if you see a kid in school, they don't have food out all the time. They have snack time and then they have lunch time, but then that's it, right? That's because our lives don't need to be around food all the time. And it also really promotes um, cavities. Like we don't need food in our mouth. We need that time away from food for the saliva to coat our teeth and things. I'm not a dentist, but that is teeth are so important to nutrition that all dietitians are, are uh, you know, interested in, in teeth health as well. And, and there are, is some research also suggesting that kids eat all the time they never experience hunger. And so they never have a drive to eat large enough portions. So it can lead to either eating too much for your body mm. or not eating enough because you don't have that information that really helps you understand when am I really hungry and when am I really full? Totally. So adding in snacks all the time can easily cause some kids 
to just eat all the time. Maybe they are more sensitive to eating triggers. And so when they see the food, they want to eat it and they feel hungry. And now they're having like a sixth or seventh meal of the day that actually they weren't even really hungry for, but the food was just there. And so they ate it for other kids who tend to not have very strong eating triggers. They just kind of like, well, you know, I'll eat a few bites. That's enough. It like dulls the hunger enough. So they never eat a really good meal and they never get the calories and the food that they need to um, kind of get what they need to thrive. So it can really um, kind of mess that up. That said, little kids, especially toddlers, often eat every two to three hours. Um, or two to three and a half hours. It really depends on the toddler and how much they eat at meals and how long they can sit and how long they're sleeping, all these things. But in general, they do eat fairly frequently because they have small stomachs. It doesn't mean they eat whenever they want. It just means that they eat more frequently than adults usually. Yeah, so what is, so in toddlers, it would be every two to three hours. Usually. What is a developmentally appropriate time beyond toddlerhood that we should be looking at to make sure that we're offering food if you are going to be moving to a Right, so I think a lot of it depends on your schedule and when kids are sleeping, but often they'll wake up, they'll have breakfast. Mm -hmm. They sometimes, depending on the kid, may have an eating opportunity in between lunch and breakfast. You often see, uh, you know, at my child's um, preschool, they had a morning snack mm -hmm. and it was available. And so they had that eating opportunity if they wanted it. Then they have lunch. Now, I would say most children, not all, but most children need another eating opportunity between lunch and dinner. So do I, frankly. So there has to be something there. and. And you think maybe back to the 50s or 60s and you, there was this big kind of like your afternoon milk and cookies or your afternoon snack, your after school snack, like those messages, right? So there's a pretty strong culture around maintaining that after school snack. Some kids will get home and they'll essentially eat an entire meal at that time and then they'll still eat dinner. But it really depends. Now, some kids, the bedtime snack is something that I would only recommend if your child really can't make it from dinner to breakfast the next morning. Most kids can, but some can't. So I have a child who must have a bedtime snack. Otherwise he wakes up in the middle of the night, every night yeah. until you have that. So, so we use a bedtime snack, but most families can probably get by without that. Cool. I also like a bedtime snack. Yeah. <laughs> so when you are like laying out food groups, I think like your meal plan the real easy weekdays if folks haven't snagged that already like head over to kids eat in color and snag it because I think a huge question that we often had in school as well was like but what do I even feed these kids I feel like they're eating all the time and what do I feed them so when we're looking at this if you're providing like meals and snacks should snack food be the same as meal food like is there a difference what are things to make sure that we're packing in at different i guess times or, or food opportunities mm -hmm. from my perspective i think food is food you can serve vegetables at breakfast you can serve vegetables for snack you can serve uh chicken <laughs> for a snack it doesn't really matter especially for toddlers they hopefully haven't really been exposed to as much quote snack food. Now the food industry really has pushed this idea of kid food and snack food. Mm -hmm. And prior to that, it was just kind of like people just ate food. And now there's this concept of snack foods specifically. I recommend including snack foods just as part of the regular meals and not drawing a lot of attention to them so that kids don't get this idea that like, oh, well, I'm only, I only eat vegetables at dinner time, or I only eat fruit with breakfast because those are foods that can nourish all day long, right? doesn't matter if it's breakfast or, or dinner. Yeah. And I, I wonder the idea of like, my kid won't eat that. Right. And I think that that's a huge thing around like this kid food idea mm -hmm. of like, even if you're like out to dinner, you're out to eat and there's like the kid food menu and it's always quite similar across the board as to what's on the kid food menu. I think it does come from this place of like, well, if I gave them salmon and broccoli, like they won't eat that, I think is a common assumption. What do you got for us there? 
are you sure? <laughs> I mean, that's my first question. Have you ever served it to them? Some kid food is food that tastes good and is predictable on the first bite. And mm -hmm. so it's many kids like quote kid food because it's been designed been manufactured to be very consistent and there's no unknowns there's nothing it's been it's they're very palatable right so it's been designed for that so of course the kid is going to like it on the first bite um food just you know people food over the years kids can learn to like people food as well it just might take a little bit longer and the more we expose kids to food, the more they learn to like it. So my kids will eat salmon and broccoli because they've seen it a whole bunch of times. Well, not really salmon, but they'll eat trout because I'm allergic to salmon, but they'll eat, you know, they eat trout, no problem, because it's just something that shows up every week or two, you know. Totally. Yeah, it makes total sense. The exposure component. And I, again, I think the fear comes in of like, well, what if they don't eat? Like what will happen if they don't eat lunch? Are they going to be hungry? Are they going to be cranky? Am I doing my job as a parent if they don't eat, quote unquote, enough here? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Being back to work after maternity leave has been so good and frankly, so hard. I love what I do and I missed collaborating with my team while I was out and it's been a tough transition. The combination of a packed schedule and still being the milk machine for Mila Bean, it's hard to juggle everything. I feel so grateful for my weekly therapy hour. Sometimes I'm just holding so much and I need a safe space to let it out and get it off my chest. I've noticed that when I don't release it, it comes out anyway, but usually in ways that aren't aligned with how I want to show up in the world. BetterHelp is such a convenient, flexible option for parents who just can't take the travel time to get to an in-person therapy visit. It's entirely online. You can show up in your jammies, always a win in my book, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you're on your way to feeling heard. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash voices today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash voices. This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair uses a molecule called hypochlorous acid, which mimics our natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. We've been loving Active Skin Repair for all the cuts and scrapes that show up in the active toddler life. Sage loves that there's both the spray version, but also a cream version. He likes to get to choose which one he's gonna do. He calls it the magic cream. And it's been so great for taking care of Mila's neck rash now that she's full on teething. Can we get a minute for a teething three and a half month old? What in the world? Active Skin Repair has thousands of five-star reviews and the ingredients so safe and clean, they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest. Keeping it simple with one soothing solution for all your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and to get 20% off your order, use code VILLAGE. That's www.activeskinrepair.com, code VILLAGE for 20% off your order. Sure. And that's a great question. So I'm assuming we're going to be talking about kids who don't have a growth problem and aren't falling off the growth chart and don't aren't like extremely underweight or losing weight. So let's just, because there are kids in that category and then, you know, my advice might be tiny, tiny bit different, but not really that different. Um, so we're just talking about kind of your typical kid. And this, I mean, this really goes for any kid. They know if they're hungry or full and they may actually appear to be not eating anything, but really they ate two bites and that was enough for them. And tomorrow they're actually going to eat as much as you. It doesn't mean you did a bad job on Monday if they eat as much as you on Tuesday. It just means that you gave them the option to 
eat as much as they needed. And that's, that's what, that's what happened. So I don't think you're doing a bad job if you allow your child to choose not to eat during a meal. What becomes complicated is if then you jump in with a rescue snack afterwards and you're like, oh, you didn't eat your dinner. You're probably hungry. It's been 10 minutes. Here's some Cheetos. Because I know you will eat Cheetos. That's where we run into the problems. It's where you're jumping in and you're messing up your own structure that you've set up. We got a bunch of questions along those lines from the village of like, well, we're sitting down for lunch and they don't eat anything at lunch or they eat very little at lunch. And then in a half hour or in an hour, they're asking for a snack. Now what? Yeah, you just kind of have to stick it out. It's not easy. It's not easy to see your child hungry and to know if I just gave them a cookie, they would be quiet and they would leave me alone and all my problems would go away, right? It's a really easy solution. But what happens when you do that is you create longer term problems for yourself. Things where they're sitting down at mealtime and they're not eating and you're feeling your blood pressure go up because you're thinking, I just need them to eat. Um, where you're now you have a child who's picky because they know if I don't eat this, you're still going to give me a snack later, something that's more highly palatable that, you know, I'll eat because you know, I'm going to lose it. Yeah. So you kind of have to call upon your higher self at moments and think, what do I want right now versus what do I want in a month or what do I want in three weeks? Because training a child and, you know, beginning to implement a schedule is going to be stressful in the short term. There are going to be tantrums. There's going to be these moments where you're thinking, did I do the right thing? Your child may decide to go to bed without having had dinner. And I want to make it really clear that this is never, like we never use food as a punishment. And I think a lot of parents are like, yeah, I would never send my kid to, to bed hungry because that phrase has been used as a punishment for many decades right? Well, I'm going to send you to bed hungry. And so they get confused when I say, well, your child doesn't have to eat dinner, but then I'm sending them to bed hungry. You're not, you're not sending them to bed hungry. You're providing the structure where you've given them the opportunity to choose whether they are going to eat dinner or not. And you as the loving, caring, supportive parent you are, are going to continue to provide three meals and one to three snacks a day regardless of whether you choose to eat. So it's never, I've been accused of child abuse because I suggested you allow your child to make this choice. There's a big difference between not feeding your child or punishing your child with, with no food versus allowing them to make that choice and you providing the consistent meals that they expect. Totally. And that I hopefully isn't new for our village. We talk a lot about the difference between punishment and holding a boundary, right? Uh -huh. like just in general in life with kids, this comes up all the time. And in the same way that you can climb into your car seat or I can put you into your car seat, but whether or not you ride in the car seat isn't up for discussion, right? So right. there are so many things in life that this part isn't up for discussion because it's my job to keep you safe and healthy and growing and developing. And there's choice within it. And this just sounds like one of those choices. And I think the big challenge for us as adults is that reparenting work of like, ooh, what narrative is coming up for us when mm -hmm. they don't eat or what's our fear around them not eating? Uh, right. How we feel like it might be a reflection. True, like your child is not going to become unhealthy because they didn't eat dinner one night. Right. It's just not how the human body works. They may not be hungry and that's why they're choosing not to eat. They may be testing out your limit. That's another thing. But if you remain consistent and you know, it's also possible that your kid may might wake up in the middle of the night and not be able to go to sleep because they're so hungry and you can give them something quietly, quickly. They'll go back to sleep. This is not an incentive. They're not going to be like, oh, yay. Now I get to wake up at two in the morning and have a snack. No child is ever going to think that. Right. But what it will tell them is, you know, maybe I should eat a little more dinner tomorrow. Kids figure this out really quickly. Totally. Yeah. I, I have that percent agree. What is the like timeline to say you're like, we're having lunch at 11 or whatever. How long is lunch available? If a kid like 
comes and goes from a table? Is it still available? Like how long is it that this meal is available? One of the questions we received was kind of specific to this of like, well, they didn't eat lunch, but then half an hour later, they wanted something. Can I offer them what was for lunch? Yeah. So usually kind of the best practice would be sitting down, having a snack. Now there are, or having a, having a meal or whatever it is. There's a few different variations. So for example, my children's preschool had snack available for a certain period of time. You could choose when you wanted to eat it within that you know, 45 minute window or whatever it was. You could sit down, have your snack and then move on. I don't think it was one of these things where you could just go sit down and eat a bite, come back, take a bite. I mean, that is not helpful. What we want is a child who can sit down, pay attention to their food, eat until they're full, and then get up and move on. So that's how we want to train kids to have a better understanding of their body and how to eat. So I recommend having a child sit, teaching them to sit for an age appropriate amount of time, which may be a lot less than a lot of parents think. And then from there, they can move on and they can get up and go away. As far as offering kids the same food again, what I find is this is often, but not always, a form of pressure or even punishment sometimes where you're like, well, you cannot have anything else until you eat these peas. And I'm going to serve you these peas six times a day, or I'm going to serve them six times a day for the next three days until they're moldy, until you eat them, right? <laughs> these are the things that happen. And it's not that uncommon for these things to happen. What it's really is a form of pressure where you're saying you must eat these peas. In reality, your child may not like the peas. They may, um, uh, they may have like a texture aversion or something like that, or they may even be allergic to the peas. We don't really know why they're not eating them. Yeah. Also, like as an adult, there are times that I just don't want that food. You know, like I and I, I think often we don't give that same grace to kids, where it's like they're allowed to not want that food right now. And it doesn't mean there's another choice necessarily, like this might be what's for dinner, but right. it's okay if they don't want it. Right. The challenge is, you know, some families, they don't have a lot of money. They don't have, they don't have the opportunity to kind of go and get something else. They're, they may be really worried that their child isn't going to get to eat again. Mm -hmm. And that's where we run into kind of the challenges of like, how do you allow a child to choose or not and still get what they need, even within, you know, the bounds of, of what you have available and, and, and the best practice of allowing a child to decide what goes into their body. So I think, uh, I just always like to acknowledge the reality that a lot of families really, it's, it's more stressful for them to come to this situation where they're saying, okay, but if my child doesn't eat, I don't know if I have something else that I can give them. Mm -hmm. So I like what you said, like a child can choose whether or not to eat. That doesn't mean you're going to give them something else, but I'd like to always make sure that there is a safe food on the table, something that you have plenty of, maybe it's bread, maybe it's rice, maybe it's pasta noodles, something that you have that they're comfortable with, they can fill up on, even if it's not exactly the thing that you, maybe you wanted them to fill up on peas, but instead they're gonna fill up on rice or instead they're gonna fill up on pasta. That's actually okay. And that also alleviates a lot of the fears of like, is my kid gonna get enough calories at this meal? Yeah, and I guess to that note, like what is, when you're serving a meal, what's like a general rule of thumb in terms of what you're choosing to put on a kid's plate? I always like to make sure there's a good fat source, a good protein source, and then a fruit and or vegetable there. And then a, a source of, of energy is how I like to put it. Often that's like a starch of some form or a whole grain or something where they're getting a lot of energy. During a snack, that might even be a piece of fruit or something. So in, in reality, what that means is I'm not just going to give a child Cheerios for a snack, like plain Cheerios. That's a, that's a good energy source for them. It's a lot of fun and it might take them a lot of long time to eat if they're toddlers, but it's not gonna fill them up until the next snack. So I'm gonna pair that with um, a peanut butter cracker or a cheese stick or um, 
something where they're getting some fat and some protein along with that carbohydrate. That makes sense. And when you're choosing the foods to put out, just like you said, like I would make sure that there's something that you know that they might fill up on. Like how, how do you balance the exposure to new foods versus the foods that you know that they like or might enjoy or want? Sure. I think providing exposure foods often and throughout the day, like all those foods that you want them eating, they have to see them if they're going to eat them. If they never see them, they're never going to eat them period. And do you do like a try it bite or you're just like, you can just look at it and not even try it. We don't use a try it bite. My children are very independent and strong kids. And I cannot imagine any scenario in which a try it bite would help me. So um, my, my personal experience with try it bites is that parents are using it because they're so frustrated that their children are not trying food. And the more that they force the try it bites, the less their children want to try foods. And I don't see it actually working in practice, um, at least in America that well. I know there are some cultures and some families where they've been able to really create a good, helpful, useful, curious culture around trying foods. And that's fine if that's working for your family. What I often see is parents shoving a bite down their kid's throat, pinching their nose so they'll try a bite, making them sit there for two hours until they try a bite. The problem with that is nobody ever wants to try a bite again. And then when you eventually just give them the choice whether or not to eat, what do you think they're going to do? They're not going to try it and they're not going to eat it. And they're just going to sit there and think, wow, this is great. I finally don't have to eat anything because trying it is associated with this big power struggle. So I just recommend saying, oh, that's fine. You don't have to eat it or you can try it when you're ready. There's a lot of different things that you can say depending on your child. And I enjoy it myself. Like, oh, wow, these peas are so delicious. Oh my gosh. The butter on them makes it so creamy. Oh, this is so good. I wonder how it would taste with a little bit of salt and pepper on it. Oh, wow. Delicious. These are the best peas I've ever made. And then like, they just kind of look at you, look at the peas. I've had my kids eat more things because they saw me enjoy them and I didn't offer them any. I didn't even put one on their plate. Like, oh, well, I didn't give you any because I didn't think you wanted any. Yeah. Which is true. And right. And I love that you described the, like the the texture and how it felt and all that. Mm -hmm. A a lot of the questions that came in were about the idea of like teaching kids about healthy food. And for some folks, the word healthy was mentioned as like a trigger word. Um, I think again, coming out of diet culture, so many folks have been raised and how to foster this like understanding or relationship of like if I put out a plate of food and on this plate is also like a cookie and you can eat whatever and however much you want, but then what if I'm limiting some foods that are on the plate and not others, like how do you address that? How do you explain that to kiddos about like what foods do in your body? Sure. So I like to describe foods by their name, which I find to be the most accurate, most helpful way to describe foods. This is a cookie. This is a pancake. This is a piece of chicken. We have this extensive vocabulary describing texture, smell, um, the way things look, the way things taste, the words for the foods themselves. Why are we condensing that all into like this, this healthy, unhealthy thing? I don't know. It's, it's inaccurate. I don't find it to be that helpful. What I do find to be helpful is when kids are really young, say like two, three, where we've taught them the words of foods. And now we start to just introduce the idea that different foods do different things in our bodies. And what that does for kids is it teaches them that foods are complex. They're, they're actually, we eat them, they do something. That's cool. That's interesting. They start to um, understand that carrots help me see in the dark. And I don't get into the details like carrots have vitamin A and vitamin A is what your eyes need. And if you don't have enough vitamin A, you'll have night blindness and things like that. I don't get into that with my two-year-old, but I just say carrots help me see in the dark. 
right? They think it's super cool. They want to eat carrots to help themselves see in the dark. I'm not using it as a tool of pressure. I'm just helping them understand their bodies, just like I might label different body parts and what they do and how they help you. This is your arm and it has a muscle and it throws the ball, right? Helping kids to understand in an age appropriate way what foods do in their bodies is a great way to at least early on protect them from some of the diet culture things. Because once they get to probably, sometimes even in preschool, teachers start introducing the idea of good food and bad food. Um, they need to have actual helpful information to combat these ideas. And helpful isn't information is not, well, my mom said that's a good food. And my mom said that's not a bad food. That's not, <laughs> that doesn't help them. But my son went to school, he was six, and his friend said, said chocolate is bad for you. And my son said, well, chocolate only does a few things in your body, which is a big difference. But my son actually had something to say and something to think. He came home and we had a conversation like, oh, he said candy was bad, but really candy only does a few things in your body. Whereas we know other foods like broccoli or chicken, those do a lot of different things in your body. And we can talk about what those differences are. And it just opens the door to conversations. As parents, if we have this idea of like good food and bad food, it adds a lot of stress to us. Like, what if I feed my kid a bad food? Am I a bad mom? Yeah. Oh, I, that's a great yeah. question. And I love that you brought it up. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. And I love that. Hmm, I love so many things about this. I love the idea. I also like love science. And I think we don't give kids credit enough of the time for like what they can take in or what for them might be like, okay, that works for me. Like as an answer, I think we're always fearful of like, what if they ask a question I don't know, or how much information do I give them about this thing? And so I also like that you clarified that, yeah, carrots help us see in the dark, not here's the exact breakdown of science all the way to a point where it's not developmentally appropriate. And then being able to expand on that. When I think about like food, I'm like, man, it's not just right now, it's what do we want them to have as a relationship with food down the road, right? When they get to go grocery shopping by themselves or they are going into a situation where we aren't controlling necessarily what's on their plate or what's in front of them, like what's our hope for their relationship with food? And I, I brought up this uh, anecdote for me. I was in the car on the way to my grandparents' house with my sister-in-law and they have, the twins were like maybe five or six at the time. And she said going in, like, today's going to be one of those days where our whole family's hanging out and there's different food in, like out just for you to have. Like, we're not going to all sit down and eat at the same time necessarily. And so let me know if you guys need help getting anything, or if you're hungry and you need support with anything, let me know. You can choose what you want to eat throughout the day. And there's going to be so many choices. Like there's going to be cupcakes and cookies and fruit and probably a veggie platter with some hummus or dips. And we're going to have hamburgers and hot dogs at some point. And you can pick throughout the day what feels best for your body to keep playing and hanging out with your cousins. And then that was it. And just like, let me know if you need help getting anything. And that was it. And I like, pause and like throughout the day just like kind of kept like an eye on my niece and nephew just to see like at six how are they going to navigate this and for sure they like had they split a cupcake at one point which is very cute like one twin Aww. ate half and then handed to the other one um but like throughout the day they really didn't it's not like they were like oh my gosh I can have cookies and cupcakes all day so that's what I'm going to have like at this point had very naturally just kind of gravitated toward a balance of foods and tried different things and also had a cupcake. And right. I'm curious about, you know, I think there's so much fear around like, okay, well, when they go to the grandparents' house, like, or to another space, or we're going to be in a group setting, like, how do we as adults control, I think is often the, the goal there, like what they're going to eat or what somebody else might feed them, like if they're going to go get ice cream with a grandparent, etc. Um, and maybe that's not what we would have done. Like, what are your thoughts there on these other influences and outside of when we're in a more controlled environment? Yeah. 
Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So, join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking It. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a, we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, Mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. It can get tricky. So I know, you know, once kids start to go out, a lot of times they're exposed to ideas and foods and all sorts of things that really we don't want for our kids. And we just have to kind of navigate those situations. I find grandparents can can be supportive of parents. Um, Sometimes they can completely undermine parents and not respect their wishes. Sometimes grandparents give little babies choking hazards despite parents stepping in. So we always have to kind of assume that every family is gonna be wildly different. And there may be times where you can just say, you know what, it is what it is. Grandma's gonna give them cupcakes all day. And that is what it is. There's other times where we're gonna have to say, you know, my kid has an allergy and you're not respecting them. And we actually can't hang out unless I'm there for a long time. So I I always like to approach the family conversations acknowledging that there are extremely complicated dynamics and you have to balance, you know, caring for your child and their needs and also your relationship and all those things in between. And it's going to look so different for every family. There also may be times where you step in and you ask the grandparents to do things other than food with your child because every they're basing the entire relationship around food. And you're thinking to yourself, can we like, also do some fun things together. So I like to take a laid back approach when I can, but there are times where you're going to need to step up and, and put up a boundary for your child to protect them from, from something. I also like when we have a holiday, the kids eat whatever they want. Like in our house, we, we may have a bowl of jelly beans and maybe they eat Maybe they eat a lot of jelly beans. Maybe they only eat a few. Maybe they don't like them. Maybe they eat so many that they had a stomach ache. These are all learning experiences because our kids are going to grow up and they're going to go over to other people's houses. They're going to go to potlucks. They're going, they just need to learn to navigate all these different circumstances. And certainly when they're younger, when they're toddlers, when they're preschoolers, they're not going up to a, a buffet table. They don't know what to put on that plate. So I make a plate for them and I make it balanced and then I give them the plate and they're perfectly happy because they, and you know, sure there's a cookie there. I don't make a big deal out of it and they eat it and they're fine. Right now, as I have a, you know, a five and a seven-year-old, they're making more choices and they're starting to say, well, I would like some of that. And they now kind of can recognize foods and, and look at what they might want to try. And then my seven-year-old is starting to want a little bit more independence with sometimes choosing his own snacks and meals. And with him, then we work on kind of 
saying, okay, what is a balanced snack? Well, a balanced snack has a protein food and it has a fruit or a veggie and it has, you know, these things. That was, that was what I was going to ask like, as they're making their own decisions at that buffet, or if they are at an age where they can choose their own snack or food on it, or can even just access the food. How are, are you coming into the conversation and saying like, oh, well, on your plate, you didn't include a veggie when you went to the buffet. Is that ever coming up or you're just like, I'm just going to let them do whatever they want here? If I'm going to, I wouldn't want anybody commenting on what I put on my plate at a buffet, and nor do I want them judging what other people are putting on their plates. So I would never personally ever comment on their plate. But at home, when we're learning, when I say, okay, you can choose a balanced snack, then I'll ask, where's the protein food? Where's the fruit or veggie? Or I'll just say, what fruit or veggie are you going to choose if we're working on that? And then I, I know you had asked about like restricting certain foods. You know, if I serve a play, play food, which is my word for, you know, quote, junk food, or I don't know, whatever you want to call it, cookies, candy, that sort of thing. If I serve it for a snack, I don't usually um, limit any certain foods. Now, if I serve a play food like candy with dinner, which I often, but not always do, um, then I would just limit it to one thing. And I would say that's not available because kids also need to learn. Sometimes we can eat as much as we want of foods and sometimes we can't. Both of those are important skills. Yeah. If they, when you say that's not available and then they're like, why? Like, why can I have more chicken, but I can't have more of the cookie? Are you going back into the, like what it does in your body? I'm not, I'm not, I'm just saying that's not available. I don't really get into it. I don't think it's, I don't think this is my personal opinion. I don't think that it's developmentally appropriate to talk about the dangers of eating too many cookies because that is such a very fine line scientifically. If I have a child who's starving to death, the more cookies they eat, the more healthy they'll become. Mm -hmm. If I have a child who's well-nourished and who's eating excessive amounts of cookies, the more cookies they eat, they may become less healthy. To try to explain something with that much nuance that could create fear and judgment in a two, three, four, five, the six-year-old, I just don't think that's developmentally appropriate. And I think they end up taking that to their friends and saying, your mom is feeding you poison because I see candy in your lunch. So I'm really, it's really something I would never say at the table. I would just say there's no more available for this meal. We'll have it again on Thursday or we'll have it again tomorrow. It's not a big deal. I, my kids understand that answer. They don't even need to know why, because the why really isn't that important. They don't have a deep curiosity about why they just want more. And if by asking why they're going to try to get you to give them more. So it's easier to just cut that conversation off where it needs to stop, which is there's no more available for this meal. And now they know to ask things like, is there more available for this meal? Uh -huh. That's awesome. Yeah, really. The why you're right is just like, a, I'm disappointed that I can't have more or frustrated or yeah. whatever. <laughs> yeah. Or um, I want more. Yeah, totally. Yeah, for sure. So what do you do if a kid is, we got a bunch of these where it was like, when I serve food, they're never touching a vegetable. It's been three months since they've eaten a vegetable. Like, what do I do here? I keep offering it. They're not touching it. Sure. So if you have a child who's extremely picky, who maybe has less than 20 to 30 foods, then we're talking about something different. There's usually an anxiety component. There may be a sensory component there's a lot of things that can play a role in extremely picky eating. And that's why I have my Better Bites program for the families of picky eaters, because it's not just one of these things where you keep serving it, one day they'll eat it. For many kids that will work, for some kids that will not work, maybe ever, and then you end up with a picky adult, right? So for those children, you need more advanced techniques. You need to under, you need to really get into the food environment. Are you really providing a good structure? Um, the, what you're serving, where you're serving it, when you're serving it, is your kid really experiencing no pressure at mealtimes? How do you serve like one family, or sorry, how do you serve one meal to your entire family mm -hmm. when you have a picky eater? That's going to look different than it would for another family. And then we move on to advanced methods. Like how do you really get them into the food, learning to like new foods, learning to taste foods in a, in a 
a system that is very supportive to you and them. So that's really something that, you know, I, I wish it was just like, oh, one Instagram post and I'll solve your, your really theater <laughs> pro problems. But that's just not how that works. It's a really big in-depth process where kids have to slowly at their own place learn to accept new foods. When is your next launch of the Better Bites program? So it just started last week. So the next one is going to start mid-September, but the waiting list is up now. And um, yeah, the, it's it's just one of those things that takes a while to totally. actually learn. Yeah. yeah, we'll link that um, the waiting list too in the blog post. One, uh, as you were saying, sensory I had the privilege of working at a school where we had an OT um, that was contracted to work with the teachers, not specifically with kids, but to support us. And uh, at the time I was an infant toddler and one, uh, two things that like I really learned in that time was a, that like food under one is not just for fun, um, which I'd like to dive into. And also uh, just that role, again, our, our village, we, they know we can't talk about emotional development without talking about sensory regulation. And so um, we've talked about how the vestibular system with the inner ear being so close to that jaw that we are seeing a lot of kids who are like chewing on things or we might see um, food challenges with kids who have sensory challenges. Mm -hmm. And how to, I guess, so my question would be like, A, how do we support parents in being able to kind of identify those things early that whether it's a boundary control situation or this is a sensory challenge for a child and then i'd like to just dive in quickly to food under one just for fun yeah so okay so let's talk about the sensory thing first yeah. so what my observation is is a lot of people who just do say food therapy with an occupational therapist or a speech language pathologist they may see some improvement but many don't see improvement because they don't also have that structure at home. I think you really have to have both. You, you need to have the sensory system in order, but you also need to have a structure at home because so many of these sensory desensitization techniques and uh, you know supporting the sensory system and learning about foods and all of these things that we need, a lot of those actually get the biggest bang for the buck when they're learned at home on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And they can only be learned in the structure of a, of a good feeding environment. So I really think the things have to go together. I think that's true for all intervention. Yeah, I think so too. So I mean, even just like adult therapy, you can go to therapy for an hour every week and not see changes if nothing's implemented outside of that. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I think that's, that's where the challenge is is it's hard to implement structures at home. It just, mm -hmm. it just is. And when you're adding to that, the stress of, of working with a child who is maybe not thriving in some way, or you have a lot of worries that they're not thriving in some way, then it just becomes more complicated. That's why in Better Bites first, we establish the home structure, and then we move on to some of these more advanced techniques that would affect that. But I do think, yeah, there's, there's a lot of ways that you can support the sensory system, even, even simple things like making sure your child has a chair that supports their feet can be huge. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it can be really a huge thing. It doesn't even be a fancy chair. It's just like something sitting under their feet to support them. And then all of a sudden they feel stable and they have that energy that they can put toward learning to chew or learning to chew and swallow. Totally. That was so huge for us too. Or like even for in school, we just, we had kiddos on small chairs towards the ground, but if their feet were dangling, even just lighting like a book underneath mm -hmm. them or something so that they could have their feet at, or their knees at a 90 degree angle. Right. For that sensory impact. Yeah. yeah. Just, just, I mean, it seems so people are like, well, I don't understand. Well, it's just one of those things that can make a huge difference. I mean, it doesn't affect every child, but it really yeah. can. Especially if there are already sensory challenges, that's just going to be further dysregulating if we have dangly feet. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. So now let's, uh, I want to hear about the food under one just for fun. It's such a common phrase and yeah. about why it isn't. Yeah. It's, I mean, first of all, kids need iron usually in the first year. And so just from a nutritional standpoint, food before one is for getting enough iron for brain development. 
but it's not also, as catchy of a phrase. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you know. I think the phrase came from the the worry that a lot of moms have that their kids aren't eating a lot of food, but part of it is they don't understand how much their kids need to eat, and part of it is just this constant worry that our kids aren't getting enough that we're kind of indoctrinated into when they're born and you're like tracking how much they ate and how long and like how many ounces or whatever, you know? And so there's, there's just a lot of worry about how much. And, and I think, I don't know exactly where it came from, but I wouldn't be surprised if it came from pediatricians just trying to say like breast milk or formula is really going to get your kid most of what they need, but they do need that food and they do need that iron. And if they aren't eating food, they may, and this is something you need to talk to a pediatrician about to check in with about your kid, they may need an iron supplement. That said, well outside of nutrition is the fact that they need to learn how to eat. They need to get that sensory experience. Like what does food taste like? What does it smell like? How does it feel on my skin? How do like when I have food all over my face, that's actually a huge boost to me learning how to eat and eat more foods and learn the texture of foods. So that when they actually go in my mouth later, I'm not freaking out about it. So there's just a lot of between the ages of six to 12 months where we usually want to be weaning our kids toward solid foods. That is the age where their sensory system is ready to go and learning those developmental things and learning learning the sensory system so that they can bring it all together and eat well. Yeah, totally. And one of the things that for like oral motor development, even just being able to like have a spoon that they might have touching parts of their mouth that they're holding sure. and chewing on, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not a big baby lid weaning or puree feeding advocate. I am an advocate for feeding babies food, however it's easiest for you. Move them to table food just as fast as you can. And, uh, but definitely they, they need to be, they need to be moving things toward their mouth. They need to be chewing on things. They need to be chewing on foods. They need to learn to pick them up. There's just a lot of interest also at that age. Now, if you have a child who's not showing any interest in food whatsoever between six and 12 months, that's, that's a good reason to like bring that up with your pediatrician and say, what do you think about this? If your child is never mouthing foods and or never mouthing toys, right? They're never bringing anything towards their mouth. That's another sign. So there's all sorts of things. If you do have a concern, you can talk to your pediatrician about it and just say, you know, does this seem normal? Obviously there's a range of what is kind of typical, but there are certain things that the pediatrician would want to see. Totally. Yeah, for sure. Brad, so for folks who are like, okay, we feel like we just threw a lot of information at people. What, what do you wish that would be like on a billboard everywhere that people could consume and take in as parents navigating tiny human food? Sure. So I think probably the, the biggest bang for the buck idea is that as a parent, you really need to decide what, when, and where your child is eating. And you really need to let your child decide how much and whether to eat. And I actually have a free child feeding guide where I kind of go into depth of like, what does this look like in a easy to understand way? It kind of talks about some of these things, like how do you get your child to sit once they want to run around? But I wish that everybody just had that like basic understanding of like, how do I, how do I do this? How do I, what do I want to work toward? What is my goal at mealtime? And I think that can really bring you through a lot of tricky times in the feeding process. Totally. I love that so much. And we'll link to that guide as well in the blog post for folks. If somebody has been like potentially living under a rock and doesn't know where to find you, where can they find you? <laughs> sure. Um, so you can find me on Instagram. You can find me at kidseatingcolor.com. You can find me on Pinterest. You can find me on Facebook, all the, all the cool places to be. And, uh, yeah, we're here too. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for hanging out with me and, and supporting parents on this journey. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful to be here. 
Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the show notes for this episode and all past episodes at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community for all of you to be a part of so that we can all gather together to raise emotionally intelligent humans? Head on over to Facebook, search Seed and Sow colon Voices of Your Village and dive into that Facebook group. We cannot wait to hang out with you and collaborate on raising these tiny humans. If you're digging this podcast, head on over to Apple Podcasts, scroll down, click those stars and leave a review. It really fills my heart to hear from all of you. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Ko, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts.